You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. For the broken and weary, waiting in
Every time. Man, the only thing I think better than the way they sing it is what they sing about. The lyrics in that song. It's, it's kind of hard sometimes when you sing that good to pay attention to the lyrics at the same time. But good news of great joy for all people. That song, I don't know if you know this, some of you maybe already caught wind of this, but that song was actually an original written in-house by a collection of our musicians and artists across all of our campuses. And in that song is embedded, I think, a couple of themes that really tend to rise to the surface this time of year, maybe even peak for us. Themes of peace, themes of our longing for reconciliation, In other words, this is a time of year where I think there is just a unique desire that rises to the surface for some bit of a calm in life. The whole year has a mix of its own crazy and its own chaos, but then ironically, the time of year that we celebrate the one who brought peace is probably one of the craziest times of year. Everything is frantic and things to do and places to get. And yet part of what that song speaks to is I think this deep longing within us for a peace that's not just outside of us, but something that regardless even of what happens outside is felt deeply inside of us. But then there's also another theme that it speaks to. When it talks about God coming to us, there is this reality that we celebrate at this time of year that what God did is bridge the gap between himself and his creation trying to reconcile us back together and there is this longing i think around this time of year both at the holidays and even even as we go into the new year for our own experiences of reconciliation whether that's reconciliation of a dream you've lost a relationship that's been broken that's why right now some of you are aching at the person that won't be at the table this year or you're fretting the person that will because there's fracture of relationships some of you are hopeful in the new year that maybe this will be the year that we can turn things around in a friendship, in a marriage with your kids, that there's just this longing at this time of year for these two very deeply embedded parts of who we are as human beings, reconciliation and peace. And then in all of it, there's these three key things that that song sings to that were a part of the original announcement of Jesus coming that actually make possible not just a longing for peace, not just a longing for all that has been broken to be reconciled, but actually for the reality of it, the experience of it. Those three things that we sang of are good news. It will cause great joy for all people. It comes out of the original announcement of Jesus' birth in the book of Luke. Chapter two, verse 10 says it this way. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring to you good news that will cause great joy for all people. So that's the three things I wanna lean into for a few minutes with us. Good news, great joy for all people. And what does that mean more than just that we get together and go through the routine of a Christmas service, but that 2,000 years ago, there was good news creating great joy for every single person that was manifest into creation like never before and never will be again. I wanna pray and just ask that the God who we sing about would be the one that we also are able to hear speak to us this evening. Father in heaven, I just come to you and ask God that you would do what only you can do in the next little bit of time to grab our hearts, to grab our minds, to grab our attention. All of us realizing God, I realize this, we all come from different places. 
not just in belief, but just different places. For some of us, this day, this week has been a great week. For some of us, it hasn't. For some of us, we are, we are here ready to celebrate. And for some of us, we are here, maybe arms emotionally crossed. And we've just got too many other things going on in our hearts. Maybe some of us very convinced that you are, and some of us not really sure of that yet. And so God, I am also aware that nobody needs a person standing up on this stage uh, that they hear from myself and all of us. Somehow, God, would you do what only you can do because we need to hear from you. So would you speak? Would you grab our attention? Would you grab our hearts? Would you grab our minds? Would you help us understand something so much more deep about this promise of yours, good news, great joy for all people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Merry Christmas, y'all. Pretty excited that you um, braved the blizzard of 22. Good heavens. It was a little slippery, but we here in Michigan just call that the start of winter. So, so glad that you're here. Um, If you're watching online and you decided to stay home, uh, we got tons of services tomorrow and we'd love to have you even come out to some of those or heck, some of you maybe even like, we're gonna bring somebody back tomorrow. We'd love to have you do that. Um, One of the things I would like to do for just a moment is this is is a real key part of who we are as a community of faith is that we're gonna receive up our offering today. And these, if you're new to Kensington, I just want you to know, I'm well aware that money in church is one of the biggest taboos out there, right? A couple things you don't talk about, a couple things that always gets us a little bit like, uh, money in church is one of them. But you just need to know if you don't know this, and this is one of the reasons that I have dedicated, my family has dedicated our time and our lives right now to this place in this community, is that this is a place that as we watched from a distance for years, we watched them just pour themselves out into the local community, into the national community, into international communities to attempt to really love people in practical, tangible ways and not just with words, but with deeds. And we have an army of people across campuses that are committed to that. And that's how we get everything done that we do. And so uh, this is what we do and this is how we do it. And so thank you for those of you that are part of that. And uh, if you came this evening, we would love to have you join us in that if you never have before. So some of you already know the routine is the buckets go down. Here's all you do. You just pass it one row behind you, pass it back down and go ahead and set it on the floor. We got a team of people that'll collect that up from you in just a couple minutes. So thank you so much for your generosity and helping us do all that we do as a community and as a church. So good news, great joy for all people. I wanna talk a minute about the fact that sometimes in life, there are things that we expect to create good news and great joy for all people and create no good news and no joy for everybody. Uh, Like a couple years ago, when my wife and I decided, uh, we have three kids, our youngest are twins. They are currently, uh, well, a couple days away at this point from being 16. Uh, But when they were about three, I think, we realized that they were growing up scared to death of dogs. We had had a dog previously. Uh, They did not know that dog by the time they were born. And so they grew up without him. We were at a friend's house once and this little yipper came running in. I am not a little dog guy. Anybody else, little dog people? Okay, good, I was gonna send you to Troy. So we had a little dog coming in and my girls ran away from our little do- that little dog. And I'm like, babe, we gotta do something about this. So my wife decided well, it's probably time to get a dog. And so she thought we, we shouldn't get a big dog. We should start off on a little dog. And so she found this family online that was 
getting rid of a dog and they loved this dog and they had stories about this dog, but they just wanted $50 to rehouse the dog. That was it. And so she got a hold of them and had a great conversation. And so we went to meet the dog and, and we heard these amazing stories about the dog. I mean, we walked in and the kids and the dad and the mom, you know, this dog, her name's Cookie. She's a beagle. Some of you have beagles, you know, right? That should have been my warning as well. I did not realize, you know, you know the Bible says Satan comes as an angel of light, right? The Greek for that is beagle. So... We go in, the story of this beagle was she never goes to the bathroom in the house, doesn't ever bark, stays out of the trash, right? And then there was this blanket, like, and she's so cute. She gets a blanket. She drags it when she's tired, and she just lays on it and goes to bed. And we're like, this dog sounds like an angel. Let's get the dog. Here, here's, here's a picture of the dog. It was Christmas time, so essentially it was kind of like the Christmas present to the kids, right? Yeah, I know. That's what we thought. Like, how could that face be anything but good news and great joy for our whole family? Yeah, we weren't home for an hour, and she had gotten into the trash. She pooped and peed in the house. She would not stop barking, and she wanted nothing to do with her blanket. It was like it was infested, and she just stayed away from it. This went on for three years. I begged my family to get rid of this dog. I'd leave the gate open, hoping it'd run away, and it did, and then it came back again and again. I was like, dog, please just go and we never could get rid of it until finally it had used the bathroom so many times in one of the rooms of the house that when I pulled up the carpet to have to replace it, I realized part of my subfloor was beginning to rot. And I had to pull that up and replace it. And I thought, this is where we're done with the dog. So I pleaded with my family, can we please get rid of the dog? They loved the dog. They did not want to get rid of the dog. So finally, I created a video to show to them how much I felt about the dog and what I felt about the dog. Now, please, 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 please. It's a very short video. And I just want to make clear, it's not real. But this is what I gave to my family. Stay. Some of you are like, come on, man, I brought a friend. They have little kids in here. Once again, not real, that no dogs were harmed in the making of that. However, if you're still frustrated and you thought that was poor taste, I would love to hear your thoughts about it. You can email me at davewilson at kensingtonchurch.com. Would appreciate it. Uh, guy that used to work here. So, all right. So here's what we did. We took the dog and we ended up giving the dog away to somebody else. And uh, months later, my kids and my wife decided we needed a dog again. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. So I put my foot down. I said, no more little dogs. We're getting a big dog. I want a better dog. And so we went and we thought we'd also do the good thing. And we rescued a dog from the pound. And we went to the Rochester Humane Society. And we found a dog, a, a hound lab mix. And we all fell in love with him. We still have that dog now. Lo best dog I've ever had in my life. But we got home before we made a decision and we're sitting at the computer and the Humane Society has one database and my kids go, we wanna see the picture again, pull up the picture, pull up the picture. So, so we're scrolling through all the pictures of the Humane Society to try and find this one particular dog. And guess what we found? Cookie. Yeah, and I know it's Cookie because it was the same dang picture we used to post when we said, does anybody want this dog? And so my wife and kids were not with me the day I delivered that dog to my quote-unquote friend that they had never met and didn't know who he was. So how believable in that moment do you think my story was that I gave that dog to another family that loved it? They actually thought I drove the dog to the pound. That doggone dog was never from the moment we got it good news. It was nothing but bad news that created much sorrow 
for all of us. But good news, great joy for all people. How is it that this baby born 2,000 years ago and in the physical act of the birth, other than, other than how he was conceived in this miraculous, supernatural manner with a virgin, how, how does this baby born in every other regard like any other baby, a belly swelled, there was labor pains, there was a day that the water broke. I mean, this was a normal delivery. How does this baby born like every other baby 2,000 years ago to an insignificant town in virtual obscurity, how does that baby create not just good news, but good news for more than even that family, but for all people who will ever exist, who ever do now, will, or have? So I want to take us to the story. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Probably some of the more familiar parts of the story of Jesus' birth are in the first couple of verses, but this is what it we're told. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census to take place while Canarius was governor of Syria. And so everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house in the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So here, here's what you always have to remember. There are, there are moments in the Bible where the transition may only be from one verse to a very next verse. So it's very simple. It's seamless for us. But there is a major scene change that's taking place here that you can overlook and you can miss because it's just one verse to the next verse. Here's why it's such a major scene change. Whenever anybody powerful or important comes into town, like who are the first people to hear about it? Other powerful and important people, right? So if the president of the United States is gonna make a trip to Detroit, you and I probably aren't getting the first announcement. Well, maybe some of you, I'm presuming. Maybe some of you are getting the first announcement. Myself and most of us, we're not getting that first announcement. It's gonna be other important and other powerful people. What God does in the arrival of Jesus is flips our way of life upside down and begins to dismantle the hierarchy that we tend to live with. And what happens here is that he comes to the most least likely people of all existence at this time to make his interest into humanity known. Here's what we read, verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. So you have these shepherds that are in a field. And they're outside of town doing their shepherd duties. And I don't know what comes to mind with a field, but I want, I want to paint the realistic picture that this is not a story. This is an account. This happened. This was a night. There were stars. It is a place. It is a real location. I have a friend of mine in this service right now who just a few months ago, actually closer weeks ago, was in Israel with her husband, snapped a picture of the very field where these shepherds would have been on your screen. This is it. I just want the realistic picture in your mind. So you can see the town off to the left, and you can see the field, obviously, off to the right. Any guesses what the field's called? Shepherd's Field. Yeah, it wasn't creative. Sometimes you just have to be clear and not creative. It's literally become called the Shepherd's Field. So I just, as we're talking about this, I want you to get a sense of, like, this is where all of what we're going to talk about actually took place and happened. 
Now, here's what you have to also understand. And, and for some of us, I'm just going to apologize right now. I might alter and, and to a degree even shatter some of the kind of the nativity nursery rhyme image that we have of the shepherds. Because when we think of the shepherds, what we tend to think of is kind of the, you know, just the nostalgic scene of the nativity that maybe you have at home or you've seen somewhere else. They're just, they're just this great addition, the shepherds, to the nativity scene. The opposite was actually very much the case. The shepherds, the shepherds weren't kind of just the friendly neighbors next door that we've turned them into as we've placed them in the nativity. In many regards, the shepherds were kind of public enemy number one. They were extreme outcasts in the time that they lived. Uh, the shepherds were not important people. They were not powerful people. They were not influential people. As a matter of fact, even more than that, they were incredibly distrusted they were not liked people. They were rejected people. And these were people that were literally pushed to the very outskirts of society, not allowed to live or even work within the community of everybody around them. If you didn't notice, one of the key things that we're told about the shepherds in this passage is that there was a group of shepherds living nearby in the field. Here's what's interesting. It doesn't say that they were working nearby. It says they were living nearby. It doesn't say they were passing through nearby. They were living nearby. This is a group of people that had been told, you're only good enough to be close, but not actually be in. You're nearby, but you don't get full access. Not to everything else that the rest of us do. There's a number of ways that I think the shepherds and us, even over 2,000 years of time, in completely different lifestyles, there's ways that I think we can relate to them and identify with them, and I think this is one of the first. None of us would probably admit it out loud. Maybe some of us would. But I find that most people have a number of things in common that for whatever distinguishes us is different. There are so many things that make us similar. And a few of them are this. Most of us have a tendency at one time or another, or maybe even more consistent than time or another, to have feelings like the shepherds of being nearby, but not entirely in. You know where you don't, you don't get the text that everybody else got about the gathering? You hear about it afterwards. They go, you guys, you guys got together? Why did, I didn't know. Like, oh, it was no big deal. It was a little thing. Or the conversation at work, where you, you notice that unless you elbow your way into the conversation, like there's just a certain group that always seems to huddle up and they always seem to find each other to talk and hang out. And, and you have to put yourself into it. You're never necessarily invited. And you're like let in when you push in or maybe it's the parents at school or maybe it's you as a student at school. Like you have friends, but you have a tendency to feel sometimes like you're more nearby, but not entirely in, or maybe it's even your own family. Maybe there's a reputation you have in your family. You're, you're the one that talks too much, or you're the one that's, maybe they see you as the one that creates too much drama, or maybe you've been too successful and they don't know what to do with that. And so they kind of keep you at an arm's length. But I haven't met a human being yet that in one circle or another doesn't know that feeling of being nearby, but not quite in. And this is the shepherds. Matter of fact, even as long as I've been a pastor, I will tell you this, I have found that even the most dedicated churchgoer, most avid believer in Jesus Christ, most committed follower, has a tendency often to feel like even with God, they're, they're nearby, but not fully in. They have a, we have a tendency to believe that there's other people that make God's kind of favorite list a little bit of headed of us. And then in addition to being nearby and not quite in, the shepherds, they had a couple of very damning labels that were given to them. 
the shepherds were seen as, as a collective of people, as individuals who were liars and not trustworthy in any matter for any reason. As a matter of fact, I, um, for a minute, I'm going to need a little bit of help from the room. Because one of the things that is so interesting about the shepherds is that the labels that were given to them throughout the course of their lives and their existence are labels that had them completely pushed to the outskirts of every relationship with people, with God. Again, another thing that we understand, who hasn't had a label at some point? Maybe, maybe it's one that you would even say, I kind of brought that one on myself. Maybe it was a label, maybe it was a name, maybe it was an identity that you didn't earn. Maybe it was one you've been able to shake. Maybe it's one that's hung with you most of your life. Matter of fact, I need somebody, somebody young in the room that can help me out for just a minute. You have to be able to write and spell better than me. So probably like, I don't know, five, in, at least five, right? Let's get you up here. Anybody want to come help me for one minute? Yeah? All right, I just saw your hand first. Go ahead, come on up. What's your name? Lucas. Lucas. That's a good name, Lucas. All right, go ahead, come on up, Lucas. Where do you go to school? Longwood, what grade? Fifth. fifth grade. Dude, that's a good grade. I wouldn't mind being back in fifth grade. Do you like fifth grade? Is everybody at your school pretty nice? For the most part. For the most part. How about, how about when they're not nice? People call names sometimes, give names, make fun of others. Sometimes. sometimes. What, what do you think? I'm going to give you a pen. What are some of the names that people have a tendency to call each other that's not very nice sometimes? What do you think would be one? There you go. Stupid. Mean. Yeah. Yeah. You know what one of mine was? Mine was, mine was dumb. I wasn't the smartest kid in my school. Should we ask, should we ask them for some help? Yeah. yeah? What do you guys think? What's a, what's a label? Give me some labels. What do we get? What do we say to one another? How do we brand one another? What? Bozo. There you go. We got a bozo here. Any bozos? A weirdo. All right, give me one more. What do you think? What's one more? Annoying. Anybody, anybody have an annoying person in your family? Your family's with you. Wow, I did not have to prompt those hands to go up very hard. Jeez, oh, Pete's. Okay, all right. Anybody think you're the annoying person in the family? Some of the same hands went up. That's great. All right, Lucas, that was awesome. I appreciate your help. Everybody give Lucas a hand. The shepherds, part of their label and part of the brand that they carried around was that they were, they were liars. They were untrustworthy. Here's how deep that ran, that they wouldn't even be used in a court of law. So if you had a court case and let's say the attorney said, judge, we have an eyewitness, was there, saw the whole thing. Judge is like, bring him in. Like, okay, judge, it's a shepherd, send him out. Like they just literally, legally, they weren't even allowed to be used in a court of law as a witness because they were considered to be so untrustworthy. They were considered to be liars. You might say, well, thank goodness for arms wide open welcoming churches that would have said things like, no perfect people allowed and come as you are. Not in this day and age. No, they weren't even allowed in what would have been the experience of the church. They were driven away even from that. As a matter of fact, here's what I think is super ironic. 
one of, the, one of the primary practices of the day, both culturally as well as religiously, was the sacrifice of lambs. And guess who would have raised these lambs? It would have been the shepherds. So one of the very practices that was so key and central to this culture and community was only made possible by these shepherds, and yet they weren't allowed to participate in it. All of this is in part what led to the shepherds probably having one of the biggest forms of identity that they did and one of the brands, the labels that they carried around, which was a crook, a thief. It's literally how, for many of them, they were able to get what they needed. Sometimes just get what they wanted. They had to resort to just taking it, sometimes by force, which I think is also very ironic when you consider this is probably the most iconic image of a shepherd. And what's this part of it called? The crook. The crook. Which by the time Webster got around to officially giving it a definition, he used three words, bent and twisted morally. That's who these people were. So you start to get an idea why in the world they might be afraid when these angels show up. This is a group of men that are not accustomed to anyone saying anything good to them, saying anything good about them, or doing anything good for them. And now this isn't just any group of people showing up. This is a group of angels sent from God to speak to them. You've got to imagine that they're expecting the hammer to fall. But again, some of you know this feeling as well. That's why some of you have probably even said things like, oh, if I go into church, a roof will probably cave in. Some of you are probably still surprised it hasn't. You're like, I'm waiting for the day. Like there's just a sense with these men that when the shepherds are visited by angels from God, a perfect, blameless, holy, righteous God that they're apparently too tarnished to even know, you, you've got to believe that there's a certain part of them waiting for the hammer to just come down heavy and hard on them. But instead... The angels deliver an entirely different message than what they expect. What the angels begin to do is speak to them words that I think are some of the most important and valuable words that have ever been spoken in all of creation. They are words, frankly, that have the power to change the course of an entire life. They're words that have the power to change and heal the most divided and broken of relationships. They are words that have the power to literally redirect your entire eternity. They are words that have the power to give life. They are words that have the power to create identity. They are words that have the power to recreate identity. They are words that have the power to strip you of the labels that have been given to you. And these are the very first human beings that will ever hear these words. So the angels continue to speak to them, and this is what they say. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And he is the Messiah of the Lord, and this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared, and angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heavens, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So here's this group of people that had likely resolved themselves to the fact that this is just who they are. It's just what they are. It, it's not likely that there was any belief on their part that there would be anybody that could ever strip away the labels that they'd been given, the image, the idea that could actually change reality, that they were outsiders instead of insiders. This is just who we are. It's our lot in life. And then all of a sudden, this group of angels shows up with an entirely different message. They're like, all right, we've got a message. Are you ready? Like, okay, we're ready. Okay, here's the thing. You're gonna find a baby. They're like, a baby? Yeah, a baby. It's gonna take more than a baby to give us whatever you think we need. Nope, baby's all you're gonna need. 
and you're gonna find him in a manger and they're like, okay, great, we get mangers and then bam, like half of heaven shows up and starts singing to him. And what they begin to sing and say to these shepherds is something that they particularly have never had said to them. It's a message only for better people, only for other people. The message is today a savior has been born to you. God has come to you, not the other people, not the better people, not the religious people. He's come to you and his peace and his favor will be yours. And you'll find him in a barn, not on a throne. And here's what's super interesting. There's actually tradition that believes and says that the place that Jesus would have been found Mind you, first of all, it wouldn't have been a barn like we think, like wooden structure. It probably would have been a cave. But there's tradition that says that the cave that they would have found him in was possibly theirs. Like, think about that. And there's a lot of reasons why that makes sense, that that could be the reality. But think about that. If that's indeed what happened, that God didn't just come first and make the announcement to the most rejected, unlikely people in existence at the time, but came to them nearby, but not quite in, in the outskirts, outside of town, in their very barn. Like, talk about trying to make a message crystal clear that I am for all people. See, I think that the shepherds in many ways, I don't think they're just part of the story. I think in a way they are the story. Jesus is the point. But at this particular moment, he has made the shepherds the story. Because if you're really trying to communicate as God to all of creation that you're for all people, then one way to do that is you come to the least of all people first. Because this was not a belief of the day that God was for all people. The belief was God is for very few people. Particularly God is only for the Jewish people. And even of the Jewish people, God is only for the good Jewish people. He's for the super religious Jewish people, for the people that can do it the best and live the best, where their good outweighs in massive ways, they're bad. That's who he's for. This is a complete flip upside down of that belief. So if God is truly trying to say, I am for all people, then the best way to begin to communicate that is you come to the least of all people first. Now here's what's interesting. I believe that the shepherds, aren't just people that we can relate to. I actually think what's so powerful about the story is we are the shepherds. I think in comparison to a perfect, blameless, holy, righteous, spotless God, I think you and I are the shepherds. There's a verse in the Bible, Romans chapter three, on your screens, it says it this way, and it's a sentiment carried all throughout the scriptures probably one of the most significant through lines of truth and messaging throughout the whole Bible. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Just keep it up for a minute. Good news of great joy for all people. If something is to be good news for all people, it must mean that there is equally bad news for all people. Otherwise, how could there be good news, let alone good news for all people? The opposite must also be true. One of the clearest through lines of messages in the Bible is also one of the hardest things to have to face and one of the hardest things that we have, I think, ability to face, particularly in the year 2022, when nobody wants to take personal responsibility for anything. Everybody else is to blame. Even for stuff we do, it's your fault, you made me do it. We don't like to take responsibility for anything. And part of God's messaging is, I am here and you have fallen short of my standard. You've fallen short of my glory. And do you realize that every single thing that's broken in this world is a result of that falling? Everything, 
from barking dogs and car alarms and break-ins and suffering children and starving families, everything that is wrong in this world. I have, I have been to two funerals this week, one of them just a few hours ago, both of which are the result of this breaking both of which are a result of the fact that there is a sinful reality to humanity that has distorted and broken what God intended to be our experience. That is the bad news for all people. But there is another through-line message throughout all of the scriptures as well, from cover to cover. And it's that there is also a deep, I would suggest, a deeper than our own brokenness, a deep, deep grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness offered us by Jesus. What was done to the shepherds to say, I will draw you in and I will change your label by changing you is the same offer that's made to every single one of us. The apostle Paul who wrote those words that we just read also wrote to a church in Ephesus. And these are the words that he once wrote that I think makes it crystal clear. Chapter two of the book of Ephesians, verse 12 says, Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and out of one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners. You are no longer strangers. But you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Paul says there is a wall between us. We are on the outside. We are nearby but not in. In all of creation compared to God. But this is what he did. He sent his son. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not about a baby in a manger. It is about the God of creation saying, I'm going to step foot into my creation to destroy the dividing wall so that there is no outsider and insider. I'm going to invite you all in so that I can transform you. I can strip away your labels. And I can give you what no one else can give you. And I will define you where you have been misdefined by others. The same thing that he did for the shepherds is the same thing he offers to you and I. And nobody in this world has power or right to define you when the God of creation defines you. What he said is that if you receive my invitation and you step in where I have destroyed the wall between us, he says nobody defines you. Your boss doesn't define you. Your job doesn't define you. Your past doesn't define you. Your spouse doesn't define you. Your failures don't define you. Your kids don't define you. Your brokenness doesn't define you. The junk you haven't even got to in your future doesn't define you. I, the God of creation and the one who broke down the wall of hostility, I invite you in and I transform you. I define you, no one else. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of Jesus. I also know that one of the hardest things to do in the world is to know how, how in the heck do we know if God's coming to us to make that invitation? You know, it's great that 2,000 years ago he did. 
but I don't know if I feel like he's doing it today. I would love to know that he's inviting me in today. Like, what's my, what's my angels in the sky with their messaging? What's my bright, shiny star to follow? You know what? Don't ever overlook the fact that in the very account of Christmas is embedded the truth and the reality that God so often comes to us in the most unassuming ways. Like 2,000 years ago, to come as a baby, he's God. Why not just plant foot down as king? Why not with a massive army? Instead, he comes in gentle and fragile and very unassuming to a town that was obscure, insignificant, at, at most 500 people. This was not an important town. This was a village and a community with no walls, no defense. You know what a wall and a defense was then? It was your army. Why, why would you be a town with no defense, no wall, no army? Because nobody wants it. Think Canada. So this is like that, right? Sorry to any of the resident Canadians. Couldn't resist. Like, why there? Why not to somewhere more powerful, more prominent? In a barn? A cave? Carved out hole in the side of a rock? And to a group of thieves and outcasts and rejects? Never overlook that I think part of the message of Christmas is that God has a tendency to reveal himself to us in very unassuming ways. And maybe for you, the way that he's beginning to do that, maybe it's even, maybe it was the fact that you got invited here. You were a little resistant, but you came. Maybe it's a new thought. Maybe that's even sparked at some point this evening or maybe still will. Maybe it's a conversation you've had this last year with a friend or a coworker about spiritual things and you can't seem to shake it. Maybe it's a personal feeling of just loneliness and you're surrounded by people, but it just, it's gnawing at you. Maybe it's a sense that something isn't entirely right in life, even though your life is good. One of my favorite quotes from an author named C.S. Lewis is when we find ourselves in a place where nothing in this life will satisfy, it's a good indication we were made for another life. Maybe there's that sense in you, like something, even though life is good, just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. Do you know there's a verse in the Bible that says, the heavens declare his glory the stars, the work of his hands. Maybe it's those moments where you look at it in nature and something in your soul settles. You know how we all, especially as Michiganders, we're the only ones in the world that say going up north. I've got a buddy in California. He's like, what are you doing this weekend? I'm like, going up north. He's like, what? Like, what does that mean? You're just driving north? <laughs> like, how, but why do we do that? Why do we love up north as Michiganders? Something settles in your soul when you go up north, doesn't it? Maybe that's God. Maybe that's his... Maybe that's his angels to you. Maybe that's his light to follow to you. Matter of fact, do you know the Bible says that God is light? What, what, if, what if every morning when the sun rises, that's God's whisper to you? Never underestimate that some of the ways that God will try to reveal himself to you will come in some of the most simple, easily overlooked ways. But here's the thing, if you follow them, you're gonna find him. Just like the shepherds. I mean, the reality is they, they could have just stayed where they were. That whole angel army could have gone away and they could have just gone, man, somebody spiked the punch? What just happened? They could have just decided to stay. But more important than the sign that they got was the willingness to follow it and see where it took them. And as they did, here's the reality. This group of outcasts and rejects in the midst of being renamed and transformed by the God who came to them first, they weren't just led to a baby in a manger, what they were led to was the king of all creation, the king who had come to 
all of us. And from that day until this one, his light passed first from the shepherds. You know, the part of the story tells us they went out after meeting Jesus in person, telling everyone what they had heard. And it began to spread from person to person to person until all the world, including you and I sitting here tonight, are able to know that the king has come for all of us.
think of Jesus or whether or not you really believe he came for you, but he did. And when I grew up, the idea of God coming for us was always for me, it was in an environment in the church where it was a lot of fear-based, like he was just mad at me, I couldn't live up to the standard, God was more Thor, he carried a big hammer and a grumpy face, and it wasn't until much later in life that I realized that that was so not who he is. He came because he is wildly and passionately affectionate for you. And whatever wall that you think maybe stands between you and him, a wall of your own doubt, a wall of your brokenness, a wall of mistakes, a wall of whatever it is that you think stands between you, his promise was he came to destroy that wall. The dividing wall of hostility. That means not just the wall between you and him, but between us, between one another. In our world that is so fractured and triggered and divided and angry and hostile so many days, there is one answer and there is one solution, and it is surrender to Jesus Christ who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between us and him and us and one another. And I just want to invite you, if you've never moved towards him, because that's what was so key with the shepherds. They could have just stayed in the field and never known. It's not just that he gives us signs. It's not just that he gives us invitation. It's that we move towards him. If you've never made a move, if you've never taken that first step, every journey begins with just one. I want to give you a chance to. There's no specific way to do it. There's no magical way to do it. But it's just an acknowledgement in your own heart. And then I think sometimes even with your words, you say, all right, God, I don't know exactly how to do all this, but I do want to move towards you. If there's no wall between us, then I want to move into you. I want to move into relationship. I want to move into who you have made me to be and the identity you have for me. I just want to give you a simple way to acknowledge that out loud with a simple prayer. And we're going to do this for multiple services, and it'll probably sound a little different every time. You're like, what verse is this in the Bible? It isn't. It's a heart posture to say, God, I want to move towards you. So if you want to move towards him, maybe, maybe for the first time ever, or maybe you just know, man, it's been a rough year and I need to move back because I've moved away. Would you just, would you pray this with me? Just say these words out loud, would you? Dear Lord Jesus, King Jesus, I give you my life. Please give me yours. Amen.
I mean, some of you, maybe it's a move back, but some of you, maybe that was the first time you ever even acknowledged something like that. And you're like, that's all you have to say? The great thing about relationship with God is it is indeed a relationship and there will be so much more to say over time. But that journey begins with a simple acknowledgement. I wanna move towards you. So we're gonna sing one last song. And there's a line in this song that says, until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And I hope that one of the things you will feel this Christmas is that the coming of God in the form of Jesus to this earth was that you would know in his appearing, he was saying to you, you are so worthy. I love you. I adore you. May your soul know how precious you are because I came.
You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.